Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. How do you know what is important in terms of doctrine in the Bible? Are some things more important than other things? How can I find out if someone is a Christian without sounding confrontational? How can I deal with coworkers who mock Christianity openly? What do you say to people who claim God is a bad designer? Because we look at some of the facets of our creation here, or, or our bodies even, and we say, hey, an engineer could have designed this better than your so-called God. Should Christians boycott certain businesses? And what about challenges to the top three arguments for God? These are some of the questions I hope to get to today. It is, if you're listening live, Saturday, January 18th. We're live this morning here, and we are talking about questions you've sent, and I'm finally getting to some of your questions. I apologize. We've had guests on. We've had other topics. But if you ever want to send me a question and you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek, send it to hello at crossexamined.org. Hello at crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. I just want to get to some of these questions today because they've been in my inbox for a while. And as I say, I try and get to as many as I can. I'm sorry I can't get to all of them. I will try and be as brief as possible. You can always say more. In fact, sometimes people ask me, you know, what are the most difficult questions you get? And have you ever had questions you can't answer? Well, sure, you have questions you can't answer. Nobody knows everything. But I actually think the biggest challenge is not necessarily answering questions. It's trying to answer questions in just two or three minutes, especially when you're on a college campus and you have a line of people wanting to ask questions. You can't you can't tell everybody everything you know about a particular topic. You don't have time and it wouldn't be productive anyway. You just got to give them a few insights, a few points, maybe a, a, a doorway to an answer, as John Lennox would say. I can't give you a complete answer. I'm just going to give you a doorway to an answer. This is why I find it humorous when some people will comment on a two-minute Q&A on our, on our uh YouTube channel. Well, you could have said this and you could have said that. Well, of course I could have said this and could have said that. I can't say everything in two or three minutes. And if you haven't noticed, uh, thanks to you and others, our YouTube channel is growing quite qu uh, quite quickly. We're almost up to 150,000 subscribers. If you watch our YouTube videos and you haven't subscribed, would you please subscribe? That way you'll always get a notification when a new video comes out. We try and put a new video up like one every day, I think it is. And these mostly come from our college events. When we go to a college campus, we uh, video everything, we stream everything, and then we cut up the Q&A so you can watch it in uh, short little bursts. And by the way, coming up next week, I'm going to be uh, January 26th. I'll be at Mosaic Church in Highland, Illinois, morning and then evening. We'll go into I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in some, in some depth. Then the next day, January 27th, a Monday, I'll be at Central Ministries in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And the next night, same in Fort Wayne, I'll be at Purdue, Purdue University, Fort Wayne. That's January 28th. And January 29th, Ohio State, the great Ohio State University. My friend Eric Chabot is the Ratio Christie leader there. He does a great job. So we'll have an event there. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. If you're anywhere near Highland, Illinois, which is really close to uh, St. Louis, not far from St. Louis, 
uh, St. Louis, Missouri, on next Sunday, January 26th, or you're in Fort Wayne two two nights in a row, January 27th, January 28th, and then Ohio State, Columbus, Ohio, January 29th. If you can't get to any of those places, we're going to stream the college events so you can watch them there. All right. Let me get to some of your questions. Um, one of the questions written in by Todd Parker was this. I've recently started listening to your podcast on a regular basis. I've heard some of your discussions at different times in the past. I really enjoy listening to you speak. Well, thank you, Todd. You have a great passion for the subjects you talk about. I do have a question. How many times must something be mentioned in the Bible to be relevant or important? Some things are easy to tell because they are talked about many times. Other things seem to be mentioned almost in passing. Just wondering how you determine what is relevant. Thanks. That's a great question. Todd, and I don't know if there's a short, succinct answer to this, because some things are mentioned just once. Do you know that you must be born again is only mentioned once? Yeah, it's important, though. I mean, Jesus mentions it in, in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus. It's not mentioned anywhere else. The concept is mentioned elsewhere. Uh, maybe not in those words, but the idea that you have to repent and you have to uh, accept what Christ has done. Uh, but it isn't put in, it, it isn't put in, in the born-again way, except in that one uh, place. Uh, so how do you know? Well, sometimes it's stated that something is really important. One of the most important passages in the Bible you can find in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, it's the resurrection chapter. This is the earliest testimony we have of the resurrection. It happens to be in 1 Corinthians 15, which virtually all scholars admit is written in the mid-50s AD by Paul, the apostle. Saul of Tarsus, who turned into Paul when he became a believer in Jesus. You know, he was a believer in Yahweh prior to that. And uh, here's how this chapter begins. Uh, it says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So he's writing back to these folks at Corinth, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. And if you heard, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise... You have believed in vain. And then, beginning in verse 3, he begins to recite what scholars now understand to be a creed. What's a creed? Something that was memorized orally before it was finally written down. And this creed, even atheistic scholars like Bart Ehrman, a skeptic from UNC Chapel Hill, admits this is very early. He puts this at, all the way back to the resurrection itself, months, maybe weeks that this creed came out of early Christianity, the early believers. And here's the creed. Uh, in fact, as I read this creed, I want you to think about how many times you hear the word that, T-H-A-T. It's a hint that this is a creed. This is one of the ways they know it's a creed. There's a rhythm to it, even in English. Here's what Paul says. He's actually reciting what he has been told by others. He says, for what I received right there, he's pointing out that he received this for what I received. I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay. When, if it says first importance, you know, it's important. And here it is that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter. And then to the 12, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. And then last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. 
how many times you hear the word that five times in like three verses because it is a creed. There's a rhythm to it. These are the people who Jesus appeared to. And he's saying, here's the gospel that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas an early rendering of, of Peter. Uh, and then to the 12, and after that, he appeared to more than 500. It says, although some have fallen asleep. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, this, is, this resurrection was not done in a corner. People have seen the resurrected Christ. And here are the people he appeared to. He appeared to me. He appeared to James. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to all the apostles and then 500 others, and many of whom are still living. You can check it out, in other words, Corinthians. So when something says it's of first importance, Todd, that's a good hint that this is the gospel and this is something that you ought to commit to memory. And this is what Paul says we take our stand on. So the gospel is of first importance. Uh, you can go to other places like a Romans 1, where Paul lays out the essentials of the faith in the first chapter. And you go to Romans 14 as well, where Paul says... Essentially, don't major in the minors. There are major doctrines and minor doctrines. And in, the, uh, in, in his day, a doctrine that people were dividing over, which he did not consider to be a major doctrine, that people could, could have their own, follow their own conscience on this, was drinking wine and, uh, and meat sacrificed to idols. Should you eat that? Paul says, don't make rules for other people. Have a rule for yourself if you want to, but don't impose that on others and vice versa. So there are important things, and then there are things that are less important. Of course, everything is important if it's in the Bible, but there's, there's different emphases and importance to salvation or not is another question. All right, Frank Turk, back in just a couple of minutes. Don't go away. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek here on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. Download our free app on the App Store. Two words in the App Store, crossexamined, crossexamined. And uh, you'll get not only this podcast, this radio program, you'll get a quick answer section. You'll get uh, the TV show streaming live. You'll get our events. As I say, we've got some events coming up in uh, near St. Louis next week, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and also Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. All the details are on our website, crossexamine.org, and that app. Uh, you can also watch the event streaming from the app as well. Now, we were answering a question from Todd regarding how uh, how do we determine whether something is important or not. Sometimes when, when something is repeated over and over again, it is very important. And before I get to that, I want to point out one thing. I mentioned I ran out of time to the end of the uh, last segment. Everything is obviously important in the Bible, but there are things that are more important than others. In fact, Jesus even says this when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does that imply? Well, there's a higher right? He says, well, love God and then love your neighbor. And you can sum the whole law up in this. He's scolding the Pharisees 
In Matthew 23, verse 23, we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago when we were talking about uh, politicians. Jesus is scolding politicians here. And here's what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You get the, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Don't strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What's that a reference to? means like you're, you're filtering your water. You're picking out gnats, but you're letting camels get into your water or get into your drink. You're missing the big picture or you're, you're, mo- you're majoring in the minors and you're ignoring the majors. That's why I said in the context of uh, politics, I said, there's some politicians who are telling us what light bulbs we can and can't use, but they're not saying don't kill your children. In fact, we want you to kill your children. We're going to pay for it and through abortion. We're going to, where the government's going to pay for that. Jesus would scold these people. This is why I can't support people who are pro-abortion. I can't do it. They're majoring in the minors. So there are things that are more important than other things. Also, last words are important, especially when they're repeated last words. The Apostle Paul, who, as you know, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. I want you to uh, listen to his last words in every one of those books he wrote. I'm going to go through them. See if you can see a pattern here. You ready? How does he end Romans? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. First Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Second Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Philippians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians. Grace be with you. First Thessalonians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Second Thessalonians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. First Timothy. Grace be with you. Second Timothy. Grace be with you. Titus. Grace be with you all. Philemon. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Gee, I think Paul is trying to communicate that salvation is by works, don't you? Ha! No, it's grace. (laughs) His last words in every single letter that he writes, his benediction in every single letter he writes has to do with grace. You think that's pretty important? Yeah, that's the whole theme of the Bible. You have paradise lost in Genesis, paradise regained in Revelation. Everything else is the story of redemption. And it's, we are redeemed by grace. Jesus does all the work. We just accept what he's done. That's what the whole message is about. So when Paul says something over and over again in every single one of his letters, and it has to do with grace, you know, grace is important. All right. Great question, Todd. Let me move on to Samantha, who's 14 years old. She says, and I'm a Christian. I recently got into a professional dance studio that uh, that has been something I've wanted for years. But at the studio, there are kids with all different kinds of beliefs. I'm just curious, what are ways I can find out who is a Christian and what are ways I can help the kids who aren't without sounding pushy or confrontational? Great question, Samantha. And I'm so glad you're out there at 14 wanting to be a witness to people. I think the best way to do this, in addition to treating everyone with respect and love, is to ask them questions. 
And I just, I start just generally, you're in a dance, a professional dance studio. So you probably have kids coming from uh, all different school districts. I might ask them, well, where are you from? Where do you go to school? Just try and learn a little bit about them before you get to, to anything that would be considered directly connected to Christianity. Uh, what are your hobbies? And obviously like dance, what else do you like? Just get to know them a little bit. And then you might say, Hey, do you go to church? And ask them where. And if they say yes, then maybe you'll have an idea of where they're coming from. And also if they say no, you'll have an idea of where they're coming from. So just ask questions. And then you won't sound pushy or confrontational because you're just asking questions. You're just trying to learn where people are coming from. The first thing I ask people whenever I meet them is, how, you know, after I know they figure out their name is, hey, where are you from? You know, just trying to see what part of the country they're from, what they're about, just to learn a little bit about them. If you can get people talking about them, uh, first of all, it's respectful. Secondly, it's easy. You don't have to know anything. All you have to do is ask questions. This is why Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, is so helpful. And he, as you know, he's updated it, so the new version is out. You ought to get that book and read it if you can, Samantha. It's well worth reading because there's so many great questions you can ask people. And in fact, there's an, a follow-on question coming up here that uh, we'll use some tactics as well in. Uh, in fact, hold on to the to your question, Samantha, because I think it's going to be partially answered by Crystal, who, who writes in and says this, hi, I stumbled upon your podcast trying to find answers to something I experienced yesterday at work and quite often in this world. In social settings, when you're surrounded by a group of people mocking Christians and God, and she says here, co-workers were making fun of a doctor who prays over his patients. What is the best way to go about it? There have been times I've spoken up about my beliefs to defend them, but I sometimes wonder if my ego is getting in the way or, or I'm standing firm in my true faith in God. Pretty much all the time in these situations, whatever I have to say is not going to change their mind and they are, not, and they, and they are just going to scoff at me. All right, let me stop right here, Crystal. Yeah, sometimes you're just planting seeds. You don't have to get all the way to the foot of the cross, as Greg Coco would say. You're just planting seeds. You're just gardening. So asking a question might be helpful, but let me continue with her, with Crystal's question. Here's what she says. So if they don't ask me directly what I believe, should I just keep my mouth shut and pray for them? Or should I always speak up? Well, you should always pray. And I think it depends on the situation as to whether or not you speak up. And I'll explain what I mean here in a minute. Let me continue with your question. Crystal says, I have no problem stating what I believe. My main fear is I don't want to become, I don't want to become a battle of who's right. And I don't want to give them more ammo on hating Christians. Because to be honest, it's easy to lose your cool and peace when people are making fun of you and your faith. Does that make sense? Thanks, Crystal. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, I remember reading J.I. Packer, his famous book, um, Knowing God. He says, you know, if you're not annoyed when people are mocking the creator of the universe and your savior, there's something wrong with you. You ought to be, you ought to, that ought to get to you. You ought to want to defend him. Not that he needs defense because he's God, but you, you, you want people to respect and know and love the true God, the savior, the savior. Now, how do you go about doing that? Uh, and first of all, let me say this, Crystal. I think if you try and do this in public in a group, it's going to come across as a rebuke. And there's probably no way of doing that because then the person's going to get defensive if they're in front of other people. You know, they say something mocking of Christianity and then you point out you're a Christian and try and counter that. They're just going to get defensive because they're in front of a, a group of people. So what do you do? I think you have to do it in private 
And this is what the, the biblical ethic is when it comes to trying to go to somebody who's offended you or has wronged you or is in doctrinal error. Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, what do they tell you to do? Go to that person privately first. That's what the Lord says. Go to the person privately first. So if you can go to the person privately, I think that's the best way of dealing with the situation and moving the ball forward. Again, publicly, it's not going to... This is true of Muslims, by the way. If you're having a conversation with a Muslim, since it's an honor-shame culture, uh, they're, they're, they're not going to react well or be open, probably, to open rebuke. They're going to have to save face in front of their friends. So anybody who does a lot of ministry to Muslims will tell you that you've got to do this privately. By the way, why do you think Jehovah's Witnesses always come in pairs? Or Mormons, they come to your house in pairs. Because there's strength in numbers. And uh, that way, one person can watch over another person and make sure he or she isn't slipping, right? Isn't backsliding. So it makes sense to do this privately. And again, Greg's questions are fabulous in this situation. If you can say, take your coworker to lunch and say, hey, you know, um, I, I, you mentioned this the other day about prayer, that um, you don't think that a, a doctor praying for his patients is a good thing. What, what do you mean by that? Why, why would that not be a good thing? I'm just curious. And, and then how did you come to that conclusion? These are questions that Greg tells you to ask, and they're good questions. I've used them uh, on college campuses quite a bit. And then you can say, um, have you ever considered, and uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, we had Lee Strobel on the program because he had this book on miracles. And I think this is from his book. Have you ever considered that 75% of doctors believe that miracles do occur today? And that 55% of doctors say they've seen results in patients that they consider miraculous. I mean, just to respond to this particular problem, this particular issue, if they're mocking doctors for praying with their patients, why do you think that would be a bad thing, you might ask? Again, you're just asking questions. When you get to the, have you ever considered, that's your opportunity to provide an answer back. You could also say this. You could say... Um, have you done any reading on the effects of prayer? Because chances are the person hasn't, right? <laughs> They've, they're just mocking. They're not being informed about something. And it's easy to mock religion. It's easy to mock Christianity. It's easy to uh, just make it seem like you're a cultural elite. And, uh, you know, everybody who's in the know is going to agree with you when you mock something. But, you know, they have positive beliefs, uh, too. Do you know the person who mocks Christianity actually has positive beliefs that need to be defended? And I'll explain what those are when we come back from the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the American Family Radio Network. And don't forget, next week starts the Dan Wallace course, one of the top scholars in the world on manuscript evidence for the New Testament. He's going to be teaching, and you can ask him questions live on Zoom video if you sign up for the premium course. So go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and sign up now. See you in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, 
Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. We're going through some of your questions here today. If you want to write in a question, hello at crossexamined.org. The question we're dealing with right now is, how can I deal with coworkers who mock Christianity? And I think asking questions is important privately, not in front of the whole group when they do it. But if you have a relationship with somebody, you say, hey, you mentioned this the other day. I want to hear more about that. Have you read um, what the effects of prayer are? Or why do you think it would be not a good thing for doctors to pay, pray with their patients. Do you think there is no God? Have you done any reading on this? Have you looked into this? Because most of the time when people are mocking Christianity, they don't really have evidence for their position. They've simply heard a slogan or they're taking a cultural position that they think other people will like. And they just repeat it. And as soon as you ask them for evidence, how did you come to that conclusion? They're out of intellectual justification for that slogan that they've just uttered, for that mocking comment they've just made. Now, you don't need to be the church lady here. You don't need to be scolding them. You can just come to them in an inquisitive way and say, hey, notice you mentioned this. Have, have you really read into this? Do you know much about this? If, why, do you, why, why did you say that? And then just let them see if they can answer it. So as I mentioned, when you say, have you ever considered that 75% of doctors believe miracles occur today and that 55% of doctors have seen results in patients they consider miraculous? Why wouldn't they pray? By the way, 38% of Americans say they've experienced a miracle. That's more than 94 million people and millions more than that worldwide worldwide will say the same. Now, maybe most of these people are mistaken, but all of them are mistaken. <laughs> Unlikely. In fact, atheists have to maintain that every single spiritual experience and every single miracle claim in the history of the world has to be false. That's what the atheists are claiming. Now, is that possible? Sure, it's possible. But is it reasonable to say that every single spiritual experience and every single miracle claim in the history of the world has been mistaken? Is that possible? It's possible, not reasonable. So atheists are maintaining a position when they mock Christianity. What is that position? Miracles don't occur. There is no God. Really? You have evidence for all that. That every single claim in the history of the world has been false? Really? Look, everyone believes in at least one miracle. What, what miracle do atheists believe? Well, they believe that the universe exploded into being out of nothing by nothing. There's a miracle with no miracle worker. And we've talked about this on this program many times before. This is Lawrence Krauss's position and other atheists that, well, the universe is just here. It just came into existence out of nothing. We don't have a cause. That's a miracle with no miracle worker. That takes more faith, if you will, than it does to believe there is an uncreated creator out there who created and sustains all things. 
So atheists, when they are mocking Christianity, are at least affirming at least one miracle that the universe came into existence out of nothing by nothing. They're also affirming that if they're atheistic materialists, that there is no immaterial realm, that everything is just run by natural forces. We're just molecular machines. We're just moist robots. A couple of months ago, I talked about a quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, which I recently discovered. In fact, I discovered it from my friend uh, Jeff Myers out there at Summit Ministries. And by the way, now's the time to sign up for Summit, ladies and gentlemen, summit.org. If you want to send your young young person to uh, two, two weeks of great worldview training and also a lot of fun out in Manitou Springs, Colorado, sign up now, summit.org. Go there. 16 to about 22. They can go there. Anyway, here's what C.S. Lewis said. Check this out. Suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so... How can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism. And therefore, I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God, unquote. Boom! Yeah, C.S. Lewis just said it so well. I wish I had that quote when I wrote Stealing from God because the chapter could have been that long. <laughs> the chapter on reason. That's what that's the whole point. When you're mocking Christianity, you're assuming that assuming your thoughts are true because you have free will, because you're not just a molecular machine. You're not just a moist robot. Well, if that's the case, there's some sort of dualism to nature. Yeah, there's the physical world and also the immaterial world. World. Well, how do you explain the spiritual world? You can't even explain the material world. And now you're saying there's no spiritual world. But in order for you to say there's no spiritual world, you have to assume there's a spiritual world. So your thoughts are really free will thoughts, not just the result of the laws of physics. So. Back to Crystal and her question. I know I'm throwing a lot on you here, but these are just some thoughts when you're having a conversation with the coworker who mocked Christianity. Have you ever considered that when you say that Christianity's fault, you're assuming something else is true, like atheistic materialism? What evidence do you have for that? And why should there be evidence in a world where it's just atoms bumping into one another? There wouldn't be evidence. The very fact that you're asking for evidence presupposes a world that that is theistic in nature, not atheistic in nature. Evidence assumes order and order assumes an orderer, i.e. God. Now, this doesn't prove the Christian God, but it sure disproves atheism in my mind. There's got to be some uncaused first cause who created and sustains all things, a spiritual realm. This universe reality is built on a mind. That's why our minds work, to know truth. Now, one other thing you can do on this, Crystal, is when they're mocking miracles, bring it back to Jesus. You might ask, have you looked into any evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? Or you may go back to the question we've talked about many times. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Or if you want to get the Christianity word out of the question because some people will have a negative idea of what Christianity is. You can say, 
if Jesus really rose from the dead to prove he was God, would you follow him? Either way, if you bring it back to Jesus, you can say that the problems we have in this world are solved by Jesus's miracles. In other words, Jesus doesn't do miracles randomly. He's not out there doing card tricks and making the Statue of Liberty disappear like David Copperfield does, right? That's magic. He's doing miracles for a reason. Notice the problems that we have in this world. Sin is a problem. Nature is a problem. Nature can hurt us. Sickness, obviously, is a problem, and it ultimately leads to death. So sin, nature, sickness, and death. Notice that Jesus' 35 or so miracles are in those four categories. First of all, he's sinless himself. None of us are sinless. Jesus is. So he solves the sin problem. What about nature? He tames nature. He walks on water. He calms the storm. What about sickness? He heals sick people. How about death? He resurrects the dead. In other words, Jesus claims to be the Messiah through his miracles by writing the very problems that hurt us. He's sinless. He tames nature. He heals sick people. He resurrects the dead. Look at his miracles. That's what he does. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. So these are things that you can talk about when somebody suggests or mocks Christianity. Privately, Crystal, go to them and say, hey, I noticed you mentioned that. How'd you come to that conclusion? Or what'd you mean by that? And then you can, have you ever considered these facts? And would you be open if it really was true? You can agree with them. Hey, look, a lot of Christians, I agree with. They, they give Christianity a bad name. But Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. Our standard bearer is not ourselves. It's Jesus himself. Our standard bearer is not some politician. It's not Donald Trump. It's certainly not Hillary Clinton. It's not, it's not some pastor in the news. It's not some, some guy who's fallen from grace. Our standard bearer is Jesus of Nazareth. Have you investigated him? Do you know who he is? Gee, I know that so many people talk about Jesus in odd ways, and I know this can be a difficult subject to even talk about, but what if it's really true? What if it's really true that the creator of the universe put on human flesh, came to earth, lived a perfect life in your place, in my place, and laid down his life to take our punishment on himself, and that by trusting in him, you could experience eternity with him? What if that's really true? You ever looked into it? Hmm. Most people haven't. They just mock it. All right. A question from Elijah says this. I recently began uh, messaging a childhood church friend, only discover he's a devoted to atheism. And we got into the topic of, the, the, of design and complexities. And he had the following to say about the watchmaker argument. How do you know it was design? Because it is complex? That does not mean that it was design. Besides, you believe that everything was designed, which makes the word lose any meaning. It's like the watchmaker analogy flaws. You pick up a watch in the beach and say it must have been designed, but you also believe that the grains of sand are designed. What's the difference? You've picked up on random a random watch on a beach full of watches next to an open ocean full of watches and claim that's different. Okay, <laughs> this is what this guy is saying. First of all, there's a difference between um, something... Uh, being 
Well, first of all, let me put it this way. Design isn't just complexity. When we're saying it's designed, we mean it's specified and complex. Uh, for example, a, a seagull's foot print in the beach may be designed in the sense that, okay, the seagull is a living thing. And when he put his footprint in there, it designed this imprint in the beach, but it, it would be different if you're, you see in the beach uh, scribbled in the sand, John loves Mary. Okay. You know that that is not just uh, complex. It's also specified. It's a message. You know that the seagull wouldn't have written John loves Mary in the sand. Only a living, intelligent human being could do such a thing. John loves Mary. So there's a difference between just design and specified complexity. In order to infer true design, you got to have specified complexity. And I'll complete the answer right on the other side of the break because part of the another question has to do with, well, this thing doesn't appear to be as designed as a human could make it. So how do we know that God exists then? All right, we're back in just a couple of minutes. I'm Frank Turek. Do not go away. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation. 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're taking, uh, I'm answering questions that you've emailed me. Hello at crossexamine.org. We're right in the middle of a question regarding design and how do you detect design. And so when somebody says, well, you're saying everything is designed in the universe. Yeah, but not everything can be detected as being designed. We're talking about being detected as being designed. And so let's assume for the sake of argument that the mechanistic viewpoint that atheists take to the universe is true. If you're assuming it for the sake of argument, you can show them that their worldview is lacking explanatory power. Because there are some things that appear to be designed, even as, say, Richard Dawkins admits when he says biology is a study of complicated things that appear to be designed for a purpose. He says they appear to be designed. Maybe they really are designed. Because when you see a message like take out the garbage mom or John loves Mary, say, written in the sand... To take out the garbage mom is an, an illustration I use when you, in fact, Dr. Geiser used to use this. You know, you come downstairs one morning, you see the bowl of alphabet cereal or the box of alphabet cereals knocked over on the table, your kitchen table, and the letters to the alphabet cereals spell take out the garbage mom. You don't assume the earthquake shook the house or the cat knocked the box over. You realize that mom has designed that message for you to take out the garbage. When you see John loves Mary in the sand, it's the same thing. In other words, when you see John loves Mary in the sand, this is not a, a God of the gaps argument or a human being of the gaps argument. When you see John loves Mary in the sand, you don't just lack a natural explanation for that phenomenon. John loves Mary is positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent being. 
And if you're going to say that everything happens by natural law, then your worldview lacks explanatory power because it can't, it can't explain why that message is on the beach. If you're going to say that everything happens by natural forces, now you're going to say, well, I believe in this intelligent force, a human being. The question is, can you extrapolate that to a divine human being? And I think, yeah, you can, because before there were any human beings on the earth, there were specified and complex creatures that appear to have to be designed by something other than natural forces. And by the way, natural forces themselves appear to be designed. They're consistent and persistent. They're fine-tuned. In fact, you can bypass all of the biological evidence if you want and go right to the fine-tuning of the universe and point out that that requires a designer as well. And it requires a creator as well. So... We're not saying that you can detect everything as being designed. We are saying that you can detect many things as being designed. And if that's the case, there must be a designer. And a related question uh, comes from Matthew. Elijah asked the previous question. Here's what Matthew says. He says, hey, Frank, I really appreciate all your work. I think it's fantastic. I had recently watched a video on YouTube that said, as humans, we are, quote, badly designed because of certain body parts that either aren't designed well or are useless. I was wondering how you respond to this, unquote. All right. Well, this is responded to in pretty good depth in I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So Matthew, if you don't have, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, get that book. And we talk about this. Uh, I believe it's in chapter, I want to say it's four or five, maybe four and five. In any event, when you're saying something isn't designed well, you're presupposing that you understand the goals of the designer. If there are no if you don't know the goals of the designer, you can't say something is badly designed. Maybe the designer wanted it to be that way. In other words, what was the purpose of the design? Let me give you an example. I have an iPhone right here. I might complain that this iPhone doesn't keep a charge long enough. Now, if I complain about that, does that mean that the iPhone wasn't designed? No. Obviously, it's still designed, even if I don't think the design is what I want it to be. My design preference would be that the, the, that the, uh, the battery would last a week. Today, it only lasts about like 18 hours, right? Depending on how much I use it. Sometimes it's only 37 minutes, however long, right? But what did the designers at Apple decide to do? They decided to trade off battery length for portability, I mean, sure, they could have made an iPhone that lasted for a whole week, but the thing would probably be the size of a briefcase. Then they're going to lose portability. So in other words, the designers at Apple had to figure out the proper optimal size for the purpose of the iPhone. In other words, they had constrained optimization. In a world of physical constraints, you're always going to have to have trade-offs. If you want a battery that lasts a week, you got to make the phone bigger. Well, we don't want the phone bigger. We want it more portable. All right, we're going to have to make it smaller then. Now, none of us are saying that the iPhone isn't designed because it has what we consider a design flaw. We're going to say, hey, they had to make that trade-off. The same thing is true with our bodies. 
Maybe the per, maybe God doesn't want us to live forever in this state. And so, yeah, sure, he could have made us with, uh, say, Teflon-coated arteries and titanium bones, like an engineer might. But that could, would, might create other problems. Like, for example, titanium bones might be too heavy. And we couldn't move as quickly. But maybe he doesn't want us to live forever here in this current state. Maybe he wants us to go obsolete, for our bodies to break down, so we can graduate to the next level and get a new uncorrupted body that won't break down. We live in a fallen world. We know that. But just because you can complain about design doesn't mean there's no design. So the argument fails. In fact, uh, Stephen Jay Gould used to have this argument uh, called panda's thumb. You know, why doesn't the panda have a more protruding thumb like we do, an opposable thumb? You see, God, a creator would have made him to have an opposable thumb. Not if God doesn't want a panda to, say, write books like Stephen Jay Gould wrote books. He needed the thumb to write books, you know, on his typewriter. Well, the panda doesn't need that. The panda just needs to be able to strip bamboo with his thumb, which it can do. So the idea that because something isn't designed the way you want it, it's not designed, fails. You've got to know the purpose of the designer in order to make such a judgment. Finally, I have a question here from uh, Matt, who says, I'm currently in a friendly debate with a fellow brother on whether it's okay to shop at re retailers that are hostile to Christian beliefs, for example, Target and Starbucks. His belief is that it is sinful for Christians to stop at these shop at these places and that they should avoid them at all costs. I respectively disagree for many reasons, but I'd like to get your take on this. One of my thoughts is, where does it end? I would, I would like to think that at some point you'll have to not shop anywhere with that belief. Thank you. Well, first of all, let me say this. I think this is an issue of Christian conscience. I think this is a Romans 14 issue. Some people feel oh, it's fine to go to Starbucks and other Christians say, no, I can't do it. Either, whatever you think about that, don't impose that on other people. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 14. Now, AFA leads some pretty effective boycotts. The American Family Association Tim Wildman and company, the network you're listening to right now. And I agree that if they want to do that and uh, they think that's something they ought to do, then they ought to do it. And they've, they've been pretty successful with, with groups like Home Depot and Target. And recently they put pressure on uh, Chick-fil-A. Personally, I don't go to Target for that reason. But I'm not saying you can't go. Uh, I try and go to Walmart. Now, is Walmart perfect? No. But if I have the choice between the two, I'm going to Walmart. I don't drink coffee, so I don't have to go to Starbucks. I don't feel like I need to go to Starbucks, even if I did drink coffee. Um, I, I prefer Lowe's to Home Depot, but the, the boycott, uh, AFA, it seems, has said that, well, you know, they're doing better now, Home Depot, so they took the boycott off, so I'll go to Home Depot on occasion. They recently put check uh, uh, some pressure on Chick-fil-A. In fact, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me talk more about Romans 14. Um, if you're going to try and put that requirement on everybody. I think you are getting to the point where you're going to have to leave this world because if all of your purchase had to have a purity requirement, how are you going to verify that? I mean, think about say, say you like Chick-fil-A as I do. Do you have to assume that all their suppliers are pure and how are you going to check that out? And what about the suppliers of the suppliers or say Hobby Lobby, which is a great organization that does great Christian work. Are all their suppliers Christians? What if their suppliers are actually supporting anti-Christian causes? Do you not shop at Hobby Lobby? I mean, 
Look, if you've got two businesses, one is a Christian business and one isn't, and you know it, okay, and you can go to the Christian, I would say support the Christian. But is it a requirement? No. And think about Chick-fil-A, for example. Tim, uh, there was more than 110,000 signatures on Chick-fil-A. Explain this recent fiasco with regard to giving to these leftist groups and not giving to the Salvation Army and and uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Tim was writing them and people like you were signing the petition. Explain it. Can you explain it for us? Well, he got an explanation, Tim did, from Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A. And you can Google and find that out. In fact, Warren Smith of Ministry Watch has a big article on that. You can check that out. Warren used to be with... Uh, with Breakpoint, uh, but now he's with the Ministry Watch. You can just Google Warren Smith and Chick-fil-A. You'll find the article. And uh, Dan Cathy came out and said, look, we inadvertently disparaged two fine ministries. We didn't want to do that. The other thing you got to realize is that the foundation at Chick-fil-A makes the, makes the, um, makes the decisions with regard to who they contribute to, not the company itself. That's delegated to the foundation. Now, you can still say, hey, you got the wrong people on the foundation if you're doing that. Please explain, Dan Cathy. That's fair to do. But the thing you also need to remember is that the owner operators of Chick-fil-A are often Christians and they personally give to Christian causes. I know two of them here in Charlotte. They donate their own money. So if you're going to say boycott Chick-fil-A, you may be hurting Christian franchisees inadvertently because you're going after the company. So you got to take all this into account. It's not as uh, cut and dried as you think. But again, the bottom line is I think this is a Romans 14 issue. If you feel strongly about it, boycott it. If you don't, then then don't. But don't put either requirement on Christians. All right. We out in Fort Wayne, Indiana and out in Ohio at Ohio State. And don't forget about Dan Wallace's course this week. Go to crossexamine.org for more. God bless. See you next week. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.